Good morning. Uh, This morning we come to the third uh, in our mini-series entitled Christian Virtues for a Time Like This. Uh, And today we're going to consider the importance of hope. Uh, Now before we can proceed any further, uh, we need to define what we mean by hope. Uh, More importantly, we need to define what the Bible means uh, when it talks about hope. You see, hope as we use it it can often simply refer to the desire for something to be a bit better, uh, for something to happen. Um, Something not too far away from wishful thinking or optimistically looking at a situation and imagining the best. Well, that's not what the Bible means. When it talks of hope, it is talking about something very different indeed. It is talking about something uh, very different from wishful thinking or something as insubstantial as the hopes that we conjure up with our minds. Uh, Biblical hope is something substantial, something sure, something that acts as a foundation for the lives that we would build. It gives us confidence as we step into the future full of assurance because of who God is, what he has done, what awaits us when we enter into glory. Hope exists when we have a firm grasp of God himself. It means that we can echo the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.12 when he says that because we have hope, we can then go and speak with boldness. It is not for us, people of hope, to go out timidly, to go out unsure into the world. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.3-4, tells us that we as Christians are a people of hope. And that hope rests on Jesus, because he was born, because he died, because he rose again, because he secures our future in glory, we have hope. And so biblical hope is a sure thing. It is founded on the unshakable person of God himself. So that's what hope is based on, but what is it? If I was to try and define biblical hope, to try and articulate it, I guess I would describe it as remembering in the darkness what you learned in the light. Hope is remembering who God is when it's put to the test. Hope is is, is holding firm to all the things that we learned about God, putting it into practice when darkness comes. Hope is that Ability to wait on him, to to trust on him, to have full assurance that he will never leave us. To say, I know who I have believed in. I am persuaded that he is fully able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Hope is to exclusively look to him, no matter what happens. That is hope. It is a sure thing. It is a solid thing. It is founded on the person of God. And so we are to remember him when the darkness comes. Well, we've learned of him in the light when things are not so easy. You see, hope comes into its own when the darkness comes, when the storms of life surround us, when doubt assails, when we feel overwhelmed. 
At that point, there is no room for something insubstantial, something flimsy, something that is swept away by the storms of life. At that moment, it is vital that your hope is secure, that it is founded on the the very character of God, who promises to deal with your past, to be your shelter in the present, and who guarantees a glorious future. It is vital that that is where hope rests. But even as the people of God, it is entirely possible for us to lose hope. There's a good example of this in the first of our readings from Matthew 11. Here we have John the Baptist languishing in prison. He's incarcerated in a cell. He's not going to leave that place alive. And it's whilst he is there in that physical and spiritual darkness that he begins to lose hope. Under the terrible strain of that place, he begins to doubt. So listen to the question that he wants Jesus to answer. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It's a question that has been voiced by so many when the darkness comes. Having followed Jesus when things were easier, when we had learned in the light, when we could see so clearly who he is and what he promises, yet in the darkness we can forget. Doubt can replace hope. And we ask, are you the one? Are you really the one? And in the darkness, even John the Baptist begins to question. And this is despite everything that he saw. Remember, <laughs> this is the guy. This is the man who, who said so many things, who saw so many things. Uh, this is the one who declared to the crowds concerning Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, the man who witnessed the seal of the Holy Spirit descending from heaven onto Jesus. Uh, the man who heard the voice declare This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the man who gave witness to the masses that Jesus is the son of God. And yet now, with death so near, sat in the darkness, he asks Jesus, are you the one? Now, the response of Jesus is very important. Uh, there are some who wonder why Jesus, Jesus didn't just simply say, yes, John, I'm the one. <laughs> just kind of leave it at that to give a, a straightforward answer. But Jesus, being Jesus, heard what John was really asking. He could see the problem. He could see what John really needed. He needed his hope restored. And it wasn't enough for Jesus just to simply say, yes, I'm the one. He needed to prove that he was the one to still John's worried heart. So those disciples who had come from John to ask the question, Jesus says, right, look at this. Go back and tell John that the blind receive their sight, that the lame now walk, the unclean are now clean, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the gospel is preached to the poor. Now, each of these things uh, was evidence that the power of God was there, that, that Jesus was right in his claims. But they were also the echoes of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 42, uh, where you had a list of things 
Where if you were going to ask, is he the one? That there was a list of things here that you could almost tick and say, yes, he is the one. And so Jesus does not simply say to John, oh yes, John, I'm the one. Jesus proves he is the one. And so he provides hope. He sends the disciples back to restore John's hope. Uh, You know, it's important when we see this comforting gentleness in the response of Jesus. It's really important for us that we see how he responds. Because all too often we can have doubts. All too often uh, we can be in the darkness and we would imagine that Jesus would treat us with derision, that he would condemn us for having those things. But look at how he treats John. I mean, I would not really have been too surprised if it wasn't for the character of Jesus uh, for him to have turned around to John and said, John, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Of course I'm the one. You know I'm the one. How many times do you need to be told? Was the voice from heaven not enough for you, John? And you could almost expect Jesus to tell him off for daring to question these things. And yet when we read it, there is no rebuke. There is no exasperation on the part of Christ. Even though John, the one who once declared now queries, Jesus treats him with gentleness. Jesus rebuilds his hope. He remakes those foundations that John once had when he was in the light. And so it is not for me to stand and berate any of you if you happen to be in the darkness. I don't get to point an accusing finger if you happen to forget what you learned in the light. Uh, I am not going to condemn you if you are asking, are you the one? Especially when the storms surround you. Instead, it is my job to tell you that there is good news. There is wonderful news because the loss of hope can be repaired. The fears can be stilled. I mean, after all, John imprisoned, his life running out, he knew where to turn for the answer. He turned to Jesus Christ for the answers. And he was provided with what he needed. Uh, Which means when it comes to ourselves, when we too have a loss of hope, it's not insurmountable. God is willing to restore you. We too can turn to him and find that he is the answer. He is the foundation for our hope. And we can expect gentleness instead of derision, which may well be deserved. But because of the character of who he is, we can find the lessons of the light returning, even though we're in the darkness. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, There is, however, I should say, uh, a danger when we are in the darkness, when we forget what we have learned in the light, when we uh, let go of our grasp of God. And having forgotten, forgotten who God really is, we can mistakenly place our hopes on all the wrong things. All the wrong things. It's a real danger. Because they're not sure. They're not a proper foundation. They're not the character of God. And so all the things we place our hopes on, all the things other than God that we rely on, well, I'm afraid they inevitably snap under the weight of the life that we build upon them. 
It's all too easy, though, to put our hopes in all the wrong places. Uh, The Old Testament shows us the consequences of this very thing on a national scale. Uh, The former prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, each of them are contending with a nation who have decided to let go of what they had learned in the light. Uh, to put their hopes anywhere but on God. And so when the darkness comes, uh, first in the form of the Assyrians and then in the form of the Babylonians, the confidence of the people isn't placed on Yahweh, their God, but it's placed on their own strength. Instead of relying on the Almighty, they look to the strength of their walls to save them. Instead of the Lord of hosts, uh, they rely on their armies. Instead of the wonderful provider of all things, they rely on their own wealth. And instead of relying on the God of gods, they look to their allies, countries like Egypt, to rescue them. They place their hopes on things that do not last despite the warnings of the prophets, despite the entreaties of God himself to them to come back and to rely on what lasts, they do not. And ultimately, as the darkness sets in, they reject God. And in the end, they lose all hope as everything falls apart. The scale of the disaster is actually quite difficult to comprehend. The nations of Israel and Judah were destroyed. People were massacred. All hope was gone. All the things that they had trusted, they were shown up to be flimsy and unreliable. However, the wonderful thing was that once all the false hopes had gone, once they had been shown up for the useless things that they were, there was room once again to have the real thing, real hope brought back to them. Because they were reminded of the real thing. And we have a gentle restoration of lost hope. It wasn't restricted to John the Baptist. He's not a a, a one-off. We have it in these prophets. A third of the book of Ezekiel is comprised of messages of hope. Uh, Jeremiah, who rather unfortunately and unfairly is known as the prophet of doom, uh, actually has hope uh, overruling the entire book. Grace and mercy stretches over the book of Jeremiah uh, like a rainbow. The second half is focused on the rescue of these errant people. Uh, The book of Isaiah is shot through, filled with messages of hope and grace and mercy from God. Um, And and chapter 40 stands out. Uh, It's a remarkable passage in its grandeur, in its wonder. Um, Isaiah 40, in my mind, in my opinion, is one of the most spectacular chapters of encouragement ever written. It's a passage that tries to pull together into words, the assurance that God gives his people. Uh, It is a message of hope guaranteed by his unassailable power and strength. And it is remarkable and it is timeless and it is precious. Uh, Handel will actually use the opening words of this chapter as the foundation to his Messiah. It's the perfect words to describe the one who will come to save. And chapter 40 is also necessary in the context of chapter 39 in Isaiah. In chapter 39, of course, the people are left with this real need for their hopes to be restored, for the people to be restored. Disaster has come. It has taken hold. It has destroyed all the things that they had rested their hopes upon. Hope has evaporated for these people. 
And it is in the face of this destruction, in the face of death, that we have a piercing ray of hope from God. And to be blunt, it is as unexpected as it is wondrous. I mean, again, at this point, you would be expecting God to say, well, look, you have earned this. I warned you time and time again. Uh, You who would ignore me, uh, who would go your own way, well, now you can reap what you have sown. That's what you'd expect. (laughs) And yet this is what you have. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Comfort, comes the cry. Uh, Literally, uh, the the Hebrew means uh, breathe again. Breathe again. You know, at the end of the the, the last chapter, there is a a, a gasp. There is a bated breath. What will become of these people? It's held in tension. These unfaithful people, what is going to happen to them? And God says, actually, breathe again. Sigh with relief. God is not done with you. There is to be hope because God is coming to the rescue. Comfort is on his lips and he will carry you in his arms. Uh, Breathe again, cries the prophet, to a people resuscitated, to a people who are effectively brought back from the dead. Uh, This is a people who are destroyed, uh, a nation that should have breathed their last, a a name confined to the history books and their people to dust. And yet these people are resuscitated. They're told to breathe again. Breathe again, cries the prophet, you who are so crippled with pain, so overwhelmed with grief and anguish, so that you feel that your chest would burst. Breathe again, those of you who lie, collapsed in exhaustion, you who are lost but who are now found. Breathe once again is the message, the unexpected, undeserved message from God. And so in verse 2, the prophet is to speak tenderly, literally, into the very heart of the people. And he is to speak to Jerusalem. (laughs) Now Jerusalem at that point is a byword for disaster and destruction and ruin. It is a name loaded with despair. It is a name that has no hope left in it. And so here he comes. Yahweh comes as the restorer of hope to the hopeless. And that name that signified failure, destruction, and death is restored. Breathing again. And so as we see in this chapter, God comes and he vanquishes despair. And instead hope emerges. And as the chapter unfolds, we see that the comfort that he is talking about rests on him. The almighty God, the creator of life, breathes new life into his people. And there is hope because of him. And, you know, as you read on through the, the text, we realize that this is a God who will bring the people back from captivity, the people back from Babylon. You know, the very one who said, let there be light and there was light, says, let there be comfort and comfort there will be. And the people who had put their hopes in all the wrong places, who found their lives completely destroyed, breathe again. Because the one who comes doesn't berate them, doesn't make it worse, doesn't point the accusing finger, doesn't rebuke them at this point. Instead, he rescues them. The provider 
of hope. And so centuries later, that same message comes to us. We who can lose hope. We who can put our hope in all the wrong places. We who can fail to remember in the darkness what we had heard in the light. And though the collapse of false hopes can often be painful and disastrous, the message comes to us once again, comfort. Breathe again. Live again. Find hope again, not in the things that failed you, but in the God who never, ever will. And so when it comes to applying this message to our lives, it is important that we hold tight onto these lessons that we learn in the light. To grasp on tight to the one that we rely on. The one who brings comfort, the one who says, breathe again to you today. And it means that we get to banish the doubts that come in the darkness. But in order to do that, let me just focus very briefly on the two key doubts that we tend to have. That would come and try and steal our hope. That would try in the darkness to make us blind to what we really know. Uh, The first one is to doubt who Jesus is, to look at him in wonder and see that question of John the Baptist echoed in our minds. Are you really the one? You know, when we begin to doubt him or doubt his goodness to us, We are prone to repeating those words. We're prone to repeating the words uh, of the devastated people in Isaiah. In Isaiah uh, 49, verse 14, Yahweh has forgotten me, my Lord has forsaken me. And we can doubt the goodness of God in our lives. And yet there's a response of God to these people. I I love the response of God to these people who would imagine that he has forgotten them. This is what he says in verse 15 of Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have carved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. How could I forget you? He asks. Your name is carved into my hands. Your name is scarred into the hollows of my palms. How can I forget you? Now we are to consider those words in the light of the cross. Where the hands that formed Adam out of the dust were nailed to a tree. When Isaiah was writing this, it was a figurative thing, a figurative way of God saying that he could not forget us. And yet this Redeemer who would not forget allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. Unable to forget, he came to forgive. And he came to forgive you. And so your name was carved into his hands when your sin nailed him there. So how can I forget you, he asks. I carry these scars, these scars that willingly paid your price in full. How can I forget you? How could I abandon you when such a great price was paid? And this is the lesson in the light that we need to hold on to in the darkness when we imagine that God is not good to us, that God would forget us. 
Uh, There's a second doubt I want to address uh, before I finish. Because there's another way that doubt can come in to try and rob us, to, to steal away the lessons of the light about who God is and who we are in the hands of God. And it's a very powerful one. And it's one that is very common because quite often uh, when we sit in the darkness, we can have that odious voice that says that you are not good enough. Why would God bother with you? You are not enough. You do not deserve the grace and mercy of God. And it's a powerful voice. And one of the reasons it's so powerful is because it's actually true (laughs) what it says. We're not good enough. We do not deserve the grace and mercy of God. And very often when that doubt will come to me and it will say, you know, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're just simply not enough. I remember the lesson of the light and I say, you know what? Thank you for the reminder. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me that I need to turn to the cross, that I need to have my eyes on him, that I need to rely on him and not myself. And I say, thank you. And I grasp hold of the lesson of the light, which is who he is and what he has done. And I return to him once more, the one who is enough, the one that comes as my savior and comes with comfort on his lips. So today he comes to you and says, breathe again. Remember what you learned in the light He says, turn to me, let me restore you, let me build up your hope once again, founded on me. Founded in the person of Christ who does not forget us, abandon us or reject us. It means then that our hope has a sure foundation. It is a hope that defines us as a people. For our hope is not simply wishing for a better future. If you're just simply wishing for a better future, you'll find yourself cowed, timidly inching forward in life based on wishful thinking. No. Even in the darkness, we are not alone. We find ourselves in the hands of the almighty creator of heaven and earth. And in the knowledge of who he is, we have hope. And we are able to stand tall and stride forward into the future. So, uh, with that in mind, let me conclude. Let me finish with the blessing of Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do indeed come before you asking that we would be filled with hope, that we would indeed, if we have been broken by the darkness, be restored because we look to you. Let our hope be restored. Let us hear the words of comfort on your lips. Let us hear that command to breathe again. Despite the burdens, despite the darkness, despite the storms, despite what comes, We have you. And I pray, O Lord, that indeed these words of Romans would be true in our lives. That we would indeed abound in hope. That we would indeed look to the God of hope and be filled with joy and peace. So Lord, we look to you. 
And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would hold on in the light, despite the darkness. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.